My name's Jeff, and I'm one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free. And uh, we just basically read two chapters. That's long enough to be any sermon right there. So let's close in prayer, and we'll be done. Uh, reality is, we've, we've, there's some questions in this passage, and we want to take a look at it. But before we jump into it, um, we do want to uh, talk about Ukraine one more time. It's not that we normally bring up everything that's happening in world events um, up onto the stage in a normal service. But in this case, our partnership with ministries in Ukraine and some of the Ukrainian citizens uh, we have close relationships with. They are um, ministries that we fund through our adult fellowships. Uh, we give. Many of us have uh, traveled on uh, short-term mission trips. Some have come here. Some of them were recently here just within the last month or so. And so it's a difficult time for us as we look at it. So we want to begin uh, this session just with a word of prayer, a point in time where we, we recognize that there are famines in Africa and floods in, in Bangladesh and earthquakes in Haiti. And we don't do this every single time. But along the way, we just recognize our own connection to the brothers and sisters in Ukraine that are friends of ours that are walking in ministry together. So will you bow your heads with me as we just simply uh, lift them up before the Lord? Lord, I thank you for our ability to come to you in prayer. I thank you that at a time when our own hearts are grieving, uh, when there is fear, when there is challenges, when there is the unknown and the uncertainties that we're facing now, that we have a God who longs to hear from us, to hear how we feel about this. And Lord, uh, we uh, simply don't have good answers. Um, we know, Lord, that uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood on this earth, and yet here we watch a struggle with flesh and blood. But Lord, we also see that it is against the spiritual forces of evil that there is evil in play. And we call out to you, Lord, for justice, for mercy, for your guidance for so many that are involved in this struggle. But Lord, at this moment, we would ask specifically for uh, those who are in the middle of it, that you would be close to them, that they would feel your presence, that you would guide them. And the Lord, we pray for their safety. We pray for the many that have been impacted by the ministries that we have partnered with who now are on the front lines holding rifles in their hands. And we ask, Lord, for your safety with them, but we also ask for your will in all of this. Lord, in the, the middle of it, we want to just simply release it all into your hands, your hands that are far more capable than anything that we could ever figure out. We love you, Lord. And uh, we just simply want to lift them up to you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning as we jump into this passage in Genesis 30 and 31, um, you just heard the whole story and how it plays out. I want to set a little bit of a timeline just for clarification as we jump into this, that um, Jacob has, we've just finished up those 14 years that he worked to get his two wives. He had all the kids. And then we're looking at a period now of six additional years. And what happens in this story is we start at the beginning of the six years. And this is when the deal is first made between Jacob and Laban. 
And then we have the six years of him being a shepherd and bringing up the flock that is going to bring his wealth so that he can take care of his family. Remember, he had two wives and two concubines and, and a lot of kids. So he simply asked Laban, how do I take care of my family? And will you give me the, you know, some kind of deal in this process that we can, we can move forward? So that brings out the six years. At the end of those six years, we end up with this first conversation about where they leave and and then we find that Laban chases him and goes through that whole thing. So we end up with a, a period of both uh, the story before and after and a little bit of, of, of during. But it's uh, the, the six years are bookended by dreams. That there's a point in time where God speaks to Jacob in a dream at the beginning of the six years and at the end of the six years. And in that process, we'll, we'll talk through that. But right off the bat, we're going to jump in in verse 25. As soon as, this is chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So the first question that we're going to have right off the bat is this question of divination and what that's about and what is divination and how does it play out? What I'd like to tell you right off the bat is where we're going is we're going to look at four perspectives of who God is. And so there's uh, four different views of God in this story, and we're going to look at them each separately. So the first one here is Laban. And Laban, right off the bat, you get this tip of the hand that he believes in divination. And divination is just the idea that somehow we can reach out into some supernatural realm and get some sort of answer for what the future holds for for us, that it might give us guidance or wisdom in a decision we make. And so people will have like palm readers read their future. They might have a crystal ball. There might be tarot cards. There's uh, astrology. There's all kinds of things. Those would all classify as divination. So right off the bat, when Laban is talking about this, he says, I have learned by divination. He doesn't tell what it was that he did, but this concept of divination is where you're trying to get some answer out of the, the magic of the universe, as it were. Back in these days, the divinations were pretty basic. So in some cases, there's records that they would just cut a chicken in half, open it up, look at his intestines and go, oh, it, it says something about my future there. And your future's probably not in good good stead if, if it's chicken intestines. And that's what it says about you. But this concept of what happens with all of it, the, some of the terms literally have words for them. For example, tassiomancy. Tassiomancy is the study of tea leaves. And um, at one point in time, Eugenie and I, we were at a, a Middle Eastern Turkish restaurant. And uh, she ordered, she saw on the menu that they had Turkish coffee. So she orders Turkish coffee. She gets it. And Turkish coffee, apparently they, they make it differently. I don't know much about coffee or Turkish coffee. But it had grounds in the bottom of it. So after you finish drinking, there's coffee grounds in the coffee. And so the, the server, she comes over as Eugenie has finished her cup and is saying, do you want some more? And then if she takes, Eugenie says yes. She takes the cup and she looks at it and she sees those coffee grounds at the bottom. And she goes, oh, oh. And Eugenie's like, what? What is that about? And she says, well, do you want me to, to read the, the coffee grounds? 
And Eugenie, she says yes. And so at that point, you know she's of the order of Laban and goes into divination. Eugenie just has totally sold off her soul. But she just said, yes, tell me what it says. But, but the lady looks at it and she stops and she says, oh, it looks like there's a move in your future. And I see a big house. And so we realized at that point that Eugenie was going to move to the big house. She's going to prison. So uh, that's it. That's all we know about divination. Um, The bottom line is that's where Laban goes. He reaches out for something to give him some direction of the future. And it's not to God. In fact, in this little concept, what he does, he leaves a line here that is fascinating. He says, this is in verse, uh, the last part of verse 27. He says, the Lord has blessed me because of you. This is a fascinating little logic pattern, if you think about it, that Laban is getting divination from somewhere else, not from God, but in the process from the divination, he stops and says, but I'm blessed because I hang around you. And not just because of you, but specifically because the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, this is something known as common grace. There's literally a phrase for it. It's the idea that common grace moves through the world and that literally this church, Fullerton Free, brings common grace through God to this entire community. That God blesses this community because you are here. Because this church lives and breathes and and works in this community, God blesses this community with a certain amount of blessing through common grace. At any point in time where you go to work and you live your life according to scripture, you're obedient to what God says, he guides you, then you're bringing that grace to those around. Laban recognizes that. He literally sees that and stops and says, your Lord has blessed me because I'm near you. Therefore, I'd rather you didn't move at all. I don't want you to go. But that line stops and gives us a really good, clear perspective of Laban's view, combined with that divination question, that what happens with Laban, his perspective of God, is that he actually, he likes the blessings of this God, but he wants nothing to do with God himself. The right question Laban would have said, would have said, whenever I'm near you, I feel blessed because of your God. Could you please tell me about your God? Could you introduce me to your God? Can I know more about your God? I want to meet this God. And Laban never does that. In fact, later on, we hear that he has household gods back at his home. He has gods of his own. In fact, that's the number one reason that he doesn't really want God is he has other gods in his life. Now, that almost doesn't need to be preached anymore, right? Is the reason we don't turn to God so many times in our life is because we actually have allowed a few other gods into our life. That that first picture of what Laban does is he's let so many other gods into his life. He has no need for the real God, the God that actually he knows has more power. So this first view, when we look at that perspective, is is a man who wants the good things to come from God, but doesn't actually want a relationship with that God. And that's troubling that if we come to church thinking that, you know what, if I live a good life and I go to church, maybe my life will be better. That's a Laban view of God. 
what happens here is that you come here not so much that you could get the blessings, but that you might actually get the God, that you would actually be in relationship and get to know God. Laban has this first perspective and literally uses Jacob as a bit of a rabbit's foot. It's a, it's a little bit of a talisman that like good things happen to me whenever I'm around you. So I'm going to keep you here. And just as a reminder, I think most of you know this, but the idea of a rabbit's foot being lucky, just think about the rabbit. That didn't turn out so well for the rabbit. So why think it's going to be good for you? That's the problem with Laban is it's just simply that type of thing. A couple of little words, though, about the things that we do, because we, we kind of take things of culture and stick them on us. It's the thing that like if the Rams are playing in the Super Bowl, that at that moment in time on that day, you might have worn a certain shirt that you thought was lucky that, hey, the team always wins when I wear this. We're bringing stuff from culture that's like a little rabbit's foot. It's like a little talisman. It's like if I do certain things, then certain things are going to go my way. And I'm not saying that that's so bad. We did end up winning because one of you wore the right shirt. That's ridiculous, right? But the idea is spiritually, we sometimes take these things and we think they're doing something for us. So we have a baptismal uh, tab right here, a, a place to be baptized. That's a wonderful thing. But if you think that being baptized is somehow that if I get immersed in this water, it's some sort of shellacking that protects my soul, you've misunderstood what baptism is. This is not some kind of talisman that's going to make your life better. This is an identification that just like Christ, I identify with Christ. I would be dead to the flesh, dead and buried and resurrected. And baptism is to say, I want to identify that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with this God. And that's why I'm baptized. It's not about the blessing you get from being baptized. It's about the declaration you make to a world that says, this is who I am and this is my God. That's what's going on in this first picture, even to the point of crosses. Some of you may wear crosses. That can be a really good thing. So don't get nervous that, man, he's about to slam me for wearing a cross. But the idea that if you wear the cross because you think somehow the cross is going to protect you or that I'm going to put the cross on my rearview mirror because that's going to keep me from an accident is not the cross. It's the one who died on the cross that protects you. It's his shed blood that actually takes away the wrath of God for a sinful world. And it's that process that if that cross you hang on to because it identifies your relationship with the almighty living God, then by all means, that cross is a beautiful representation of who you think God is and your perspective of God. Laban does not have that. Laban is hanging on for the shellackings. Laban is hanging on for the talisman. Laban is just saying there's something good here. This is good luck. This is the rabbit's foot for me. So because of that, we then have Jacob come up and he says, look, I can't take care of my family. I've been here all this time. And uh, Laban says, well, stay longer because I want this blessing. So they decide to make a deal. And the deal is that uh, verses 28 to to 36, we won't read all of them, but just to to put it in perspective, uh, Laban says to Jacob, name your wages and I will give it. And Jacob says to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before that I came and it is increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. 
But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And then Laban says, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats with black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had white in it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And then he left on a three-day journey. This is treachery. Laban says, this is a great deal. So let's talk about the great deal for a second. I'm going to show you a picture of uh, the typical flock of sheep. You think of sheep, you think of white sheep. There in the middle is a brown sheep, black face. But the, the bottom line is, this is what happens genetically. That the dominant gene with sheep is white. That sheep will give birth to white lambs. Occasionally, there are recessive genes that might be in the parents. And a recessive gene is the, the less dominant gene. And that gene, if it's found in both the, the mom and the dad, will sometimes produce a spotted sheep, a striped sheep, or a black sheep. But it's really rare. You know that it's rare. We use it as common vernacular that he stood out like the black sheep of the family. It's the idea that there's one that's different from all the rest. Everybody knows that. Laban knew that. And so when, when Jacob makes this deal and says, I'll tell you what, all the ones that are different, I get to keep. <laughs> Laban's like, deal, man. And in fact, he then goes out and takes all the ones that are spotted and striped and mottled and black, and he removes them all. He takes away the spotted and the striped. This, by the way, uh, theologians agree, is the very first uh, spot remover in history. I'm sorry, this whole sermon was written just so that I could say that. I said to Darren, please let me take this passage because this is a, it's written in my margin and I, I just had to say it, sorry. But the bottom line is he takes away the spotted and he, he, he combines it with that idea of treachery that he's going to even make it even harder, that that's going to be how this thing goes down. But that's where we introduce Jacob and Jacob's perspective of God. Because this is a beautiful thing that happens next with Jacob. That Jacob believes in this God. And here's why. And I want want you to peek in your Bibles for just a second. If you go to chapter 31, verses 10 to 12. We talked about dreams in those six years. But there's a part of this dream that, that literally God speaks to him before. And it's after the six years when he's explaining why they're leaving to his wives. That at that moment, he talks about this dream. So in verse 10, it says, In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. That this dream comes beforehand, that God tells him, all of these sheep that you're going to keep charge of, they're going to produce striped, spotted, mottled, black sheep. And at this point in time, Jacob believes that. 
He believes it so much so that he makes this deal with Laban that is ridiculous. Sheep turn out white. They don't turn out black, spotted, and mottled. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to use different words like spotted and, and mottled. And those kind of things are going to get messed up as we go back and forth with this. But the bottom line is, Jacob knew what he was doing, but there was only one way that this could happen. And that was that God himself would show up, just like he did in the dream. So Jacob begins with this perspective of God, where he believes in God, he believes that God is good, he believes that God is powerful, and he believes that God has a personal relationship with him, has visited him in a dream, and has told him what comes next. And Jacob's faith builds on that. So we have Laban, who just wants the blessings of God, but doesn't want God himself. And then Jacob, who comes in and believes in God, that he's a good God, that loves him and has a relationship with him. But there's something else that happens in this story. It's the whole thing with the sticks. You've got almond and poplar and plane trees. And so right off the bat, it stops and says that he peeled the sticks and stuck them in the water trough. So where the the sheep would mate that they would come out spotted. So I want to show you what he did. This is actually, archaeologists have found this uh, photograph. That's actually Jacob there, um, peeling the sticks. But as he's peeling it back, he's revealing that inner layer of the branch. And so the next one, we're going to give you some quick science to explain how this all works. That inside of a tree, you have dead wood from past growth. And on the outside, you have bark, which is dead. And that's just being pushed out. But on the inside, right around that little green belt area, that is actually the cambium layer. And the cambium layer is where all the chemicals pulled out of the soil, go up into the tree. And, and build leaves and branches and, and build a tree. That whole thing of what's happening with the chemicals being brought up is true. That happens all the time. In fact, even willow trees that just grow around here in the bark of some willows are, is a painkiller that's almost as effective as aspirin. Most of our drugs come from plants because of the chemicals that pass through them. So as you study this whole fascinating sense of what's going on with botany and the chemicals, you stop and go, clearly the answer lies here. Yeah, no scientist has figured this one out. Nobody studied this and went, gosh, if we put this chemical in the water, sheep are going to start producing spotted sheep or striped sheep or black sheep. And then it also implies that if it's striped sticks in front of the sheep when they're mating, that they'll produce it because they see the stripes in the sticks. And then there's also the concept that did he use it to sort them? We don't know. That we still, even after everything that's said and done, you look at this passage, you look at science, you try to figure it out. And it's like, how did this happen? What happened here in this process? And what, what comes along in the middle of this is this idea that somehow, if we could find the scientific answer for how this would work, then I would have faith in God. That my faith would be stronger if I could have this explained exactly how the sticks worked. But we don't know. And it's this idea that how strange it is that we believe that there's a God in heaven, but somehow we doubt that God's ability to do God-like things. Do you get that? That we do this all the time. We say, I believe in you, God. But then when there's God-like things that, that happen or need to happen, we doubt that that's actually God at play. If he does something miraculous in our life, we try to sign it off to, you know, that's just coincidence. That's just something else that happened. We don't want to actually put a God-like thing in the camp of God. 
And that means their perspective of God is skewed. But instead, what happens is we find that science itself is always late to the show compared to where the Bible has already been. And some of you have, have know of these things. I'm going to go through a quick list. But in Isaiah 40, it describes the earth as being a sphere out in space. Science, for, for many thousands of years, saw the earth as flat and literally supported on some, some type of pedestal. In Jeremiah 33, it describes the stars as being innumerable, too many to count. And it wasn't until 1608 that with the development of a telescope that we were actually, previously, we had only counted 1,100 stars. So people read the Bible and they went, it's not innumerable, we can count them. There are 1,100 stars until the telescope. And we looked up and went, oh man, they're innumerable. Huh, who'd have guessed? The Bible said that a long time ago. Job says the air has weight. And we, for years, science said it was weightless. Even the wind in Ecclesiastes is described in going in circles like cyclones. And previously, science said, no, wind just blows in one straight direction. In the book of Job, and uh, we'll kind of just go faster this, more astronomy, but in verse 31 of chapter 38 of Job, it says, this is God speaking, and he says, can you bind the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? This passage is such a cool passage because Pleiades is a small star cluster that literally is bound together. And we didn't know that until the 1800s, that Pleiades was a group of stars that were bound together. The Bible said it. Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and it's already talking about it. The cords of of Orion, that's the belt of Orion. You see it in the winter sky as Orion rises up, those three stars that make up the belt, and that they've been loosed. Well, guess what? Those three stars are not bound together. They're actually heading in completely opposite directions, all loosed and moving apart. And then this last line, this idea that you can guide the bear. Can you guide the bear with its children? Arcturus, a star at the tail end of Bahutes, which is the bear herder. Arcturus means bear. And science has just discovered in 1971 that right Combined with Arcturus, the star that's the bear, are 52 other stars that travel with it as it speeds through the universe. A very rare thing that stars travel together in a cluster like that. Arcturus has its children. This is in the oldest book of the Bible, and we don't know about it until 1971. What does that mean about sticks and striped sheep? I don't know. I don't have a clue. Nobody else does either. What I know is, is this God typically shows up and proves himself right over and over and over again. And that's a God that we trust. That's the God that Jacob trusts. That's the God that Jacob stops and says, my perspective of God is he's capable. If he said it, I will do it. And he goes through these six years of breeding. And at that point, he ends up with this. That's me. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's a, it's, the, it, it's a slide of just simply Jacob's herd. Oh, come on. You guys got it. That's just adorable, right? Here's what's really adorable about it. It's not so much that they're cute little lambs. It's that the math actually, when you play this out, it is fascinating. If by chance Laban had 100 ewes, the female sheep, 
And if he's got a hundred ewes that, that Jacob now takes and cares for the flock, he takes those hundred ewes and a ewe will give one to two lambs a year. So we're going to do one and a half. That's one and a half lambs total because one might only give one, might give two. You get it where we're going. We're going to do this math really fast. Don't worry about it. I did it. It's conservative. But the bottom line is only half of them are going to be future ewes. Other half are going to be rams. So you divide that by that. Then you times it by six because he had six years. The bottom line, when you do all of the math, that if when God says all of them are going to be spotted, mottled, striped, that Laban ends up with 100 ewes. Jacob ends up with 2,750 ewes. That's spectacular. We're not even counting the rams. That's what happens in six years and Jacob leaves. And this is the reason why his Laban sons stop and say, he's taken all of our dad's stuff. This guy is getting rich and we're getting poorer. And at that moment in time, that's where we see him say, hey, it's time to go. And that's when they decide to leave. The, the whole thing, though, is even here God shows up because this time to leave thing where the dream comes to, to Jacob at the tail end of the six years. If you remember back in Genesis 27, after Jacob and Esau had their thing with Rebekah and Isaac, where um, Jacob and Rebekah tricked Isaac to get the blessing. Or you remember that, the birthright. And that whole thing happened. And Esau's mad. And so Rebecca says to her favorite son, to Jacob, says, you got to get out of here because I fear that Esau's going to kill you. You go, go to my brother Laban. You go stay there until I tell you it's safe. And when I tell you it's safe, I'll send for you. Rebecca never sends for Jacob. That's why he's gone for 14 years and now six years. For 20 years, he has not heard from his mother because she died. She died before she could ever call him home. And so Jacob is stuck there in the land with Laban, except only there's one person who remembers, and it's God himself. God knows. God shows up, and God stops and says, it's time to go. And it's at this moment with those cute sheep that Jacob leaves. But just before he does, one of his wives, Rachel, goes in. He knows that, that they're leaving, goes into his, his, her dad's tent and steals the household gods. And at this point, we get a perspective of Rachel, right? This is her view of God. This is how she views God. I'm leaving. We're about to go off to this foreign land because she's never been where Jacob is going. And so she reaches back and takes her dad's gods. As she travels off with her husband saying, I, I believe in your God to her, to her husband. Rachel's view of God is secondhand. She doesn't have a first person relationship with either her dad's gods or with Jacob's gods. She has a secondhand relationship. Now, I've seen this before. Literally, this is the type of thing where when I, I used to work at Hume Lake and when I was working as a lead counselor, working with high school students, we would sometimes get working with students who were either going through something really difficult. Maybe they had been abused and it came out at camp. And so we're working with how do we go back home to a family that had abuse in it? How do we help this kid deal with that? Maybe somebody would die in their family and they just got news. Maybe they got caught doing something really bad, destroying property at Hume or, or something worse. And in the process, 
we would sit down with that student and try to, to counsel them, to guide them. But one of the things we might do is want to pray with them and talk to them about God. Well, the first question was, what's their relationship with God like? So I learned to ask this simple question. I would simply say, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. That was my first question to start the conversation. And invariably, they either had a relationship with Jesus, in which case they would talk about that day they met the Lord, what's had happening since, whether it's good, whether it's strained, whether God has been very tender with them, whatever it is, they would describe it. But more often than not, the student would stop and say, well, my mom goes to a church down the street, or my grandfather was a pastor, or my brother sometimes. In other words, they would never talk about their relationship with Jesus because they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. It's really difficult to describe your relationship with someone if it doesn't exist. And in that process, it allowed us to know that if they didn't have it, it would come out really clearly in their words. Well, with Rachel here, that's what's happening. She's reaching out for her dad's gods, and she doesn't have a deep belief in him. Because think about it. She's taking these gods, but she's not really worried about what the gods would do or could do. If she's stealing them, she hides them up under her shirt and she's not worried that the gods are going to go, we're here, we're here. Hey, let us out. It's dark. We need out. The gods aren't going to say anything. She's not worried about the gods saying anything because she doesn't really believe in the power of those gods. She has no relationship with those gods either. Nor does she have a relationship with Jacob's gods or she wouldn't have stolen her dad's gods. So at that point, as we look at Rachel, we have this sense that too often some of us think we're okay with God because somebody we know is okay with God. And that's not how it works. God has a personal relationship with every single human being on the planet, or he doesn't. And if you're here today and you don't have that personal relationship, we're going to encourage you to get one. He desperately wants it. The last and fourth perspective. So we've got Laban's view of God, Jacob's view of God, and Rachel's view of God. The last one is actually God himself. This is the God of the universe who stops. And in this story, in these two chapters, it's described out how he perceives things. There's so much in this text. We're going to just take a, a quick snapshot out at a few of them. And so I'm going to read through these really quick uh, This is a God, and this is what it says. God's view of himself is probably the most accurate. We would agree? If anybody knows who who God is, it's God. And God, this this is a God who in verse 3 says he is faithful. For he says, I will be with you. And he was. Also in verse 3, this is a God who knows where you are and where you should be. He knew where he was in a foreign land and knew where he should be back. And it literally says, return to the land of your fathers. In verse 5, this is a God who is present. And Jacob says, God has been with me. In verse 7, this is a God who protects. Quote, God did not permit him to, to harm me. And verse 8, it's a God who supernaturally engages with man. All the spotted sheep is for Jacob. And in verse 9, this is a God who gives and takes away, both gives to Jacob and takes from Laban. Verse 12, he guides and speaks to man when he says, lift up your eyes. Also in verse 12, he knows the troubles and difficulties that you are facing. 
when he says, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. God knows what you're facing even today, the difficulties and challenges. That's who this God is. That's his perspective. This is a God who remembers, I am the God of Bethel. That situation at Bethel when he had the dream and set his pillow up the stone, that was 20 years earlier and God stops and reminds him, I am the God of Bethel. Verse 24, I'm a God who intervenes and that God came to, to Laban in a dream. This is Laban who doesn't even want that personal relationship with God. God intervenes even in his life and also brings grace. This is a God of grace. That instead of letting Laban go and do bad things to Jacob, literally God appears in a dream to Laban and brings grace and says, don't say anything good or evil against Jacob. And basically saves Laban from his own misery in that process. And this is a God who sees at the very end of the chapter, um, they put up a pillar, a stack of stones, and they say, see, God is witness between you and me. They both recognize that this God sees. This is God's view of himself. This is his perspective. These are his descriptions. God sends his son so that we would know him. God sends his spirit so he would communicate to us. And God gives his word so that we would know more about who he is. And in this God that is in an obscure story in the Old Testament. This is a God who reveals himself. He is faithful. He is present. He is powerful. He is loving. He is gracious. He's a God who protects. He's personal. And he wants a relationship with you. That's cool. So what? Well, one thing is in contrast. This God that we've just described, just with a clear picture of how he's described in this passage, is contrasted with Laban's gods. We have these household gods, and we don't even know how many there were. Were there two, three, four, five? We don't know. We don't know if they're made out of gold or, or, or stone or wood. It doesn't describe them. The only thing we know about the other gods is that they're small enough to fit underneath a saddle. So the take home for today, never trust a God who fits under your saddle. That's not it. You should know that. Instead, trust the God that's so big, you couldn't imagine where you could even put him. This God is the question where the so what comes in. I know that in my life, I watch it happen over and over again, that my view of God affects my level of obedience. What I think about God determines whether I follow him and obey him when he speaks to me. And literally the two sisters, after Jacob has described everything about the dreams and everything that's happened, I love their answer. They, in verse 16, it says, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, their quote, whatever God has said to you, do. If you've got a journal, if you've got a, a, something you can write in your Bibles, a piece of paper, this is the quote to write down. If it's in your Bible, mark it. But whatever God has said to you, If God is talking to you about sin that you're trapped in and he's saying, stop, put that away. Whatever God has said to you, do. If God is calling you to step out in obedience in some way that scares you and you're nervous about whatever God has said to you, do. Your perspective of God is directly reflected in your level of obedience. If you put God off, you're no different than Laban. It's that concept of just simply stopping and go, I want the blessings of God, but I don't really want a relationship with God. And yet that relationship with God is where all the blessings come from. 
to have a relationship with the almighty living God, a thing that he desires and wants is a beautiful thing. The last thing I want to do just in closing is to simply put what we've learned about God and this perspective of God into the front pages of the newspaper today. If we're concerned about what's happening in Ukraine, if we're concerned about what's happening with COVID, if we're concerned about anything else that has our heart heavy, can we take this perspective of who God is and look at it that way? And I want to finish simply by looking at the words of God himself out of the book of Psalms, Psalms 46, that as we close, I want you to see how God is described and think about how these words apply to world events. Psalms 46. Verse one, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Verse six, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought the desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you that even as we look for help, as we reach out and things seem overwhelming at times, there is you, a God who is powerful, a God who is present, a God who is all seen, a God who cares, a God who loves, and a God who desires a personal relationship with us. Lord, I would ask that if for anybody who might be in this room that desires a relationship or is curious about knowing you, that Lord, that even today, you would wrap yourself around them, that they wouldn't come to know you today, that they may too have a different perspective of who you are because they know you. And Lord, for the rest of us that have a relationship with you, may we just simply remember those words that whatever you have told us, we need to do. We need to be obedient. We need to follow you. We need to lean into you. We need to trust you that we might have Jacob's perspective that we can place our life fully and wholly into your hands. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.